and welcome to the podcast show called What Do I Say? My name is Ryan and I am one of the pastors at New Hope Church and I get to be joined today by another pastor. This is Tom. Hi everybody. We are thrilled to get to spend a few minutes with you and as uh, if this is your first time checking out this podcast show or you're a regular, we take on a topic each episode that tends to be apologetic in nature and really challenges to think biblically about it. And uh, today's topic is, well, it's it's a good one. And I hope you really uh, are excited in, in terms of engaging this topic. We're going to be looking at science and faith. Friend or foe, do they get along? Has science shown Christianity to be false and unnecessary? This is really a, a, an important topic and is one that in terms of current events is uh it really is in the news, and it's it's a message that, that Christians could get that science and Christianity do not get along, that they're incompatible. Uh, I remember reading years ago a quote by Richard Dawkins, for example, and his quote said, Science flies you to the moon, but religion flies you into buildings. And a comment like that that's pretty combative is very clear, that science is good and belief in God is bad, that the two have nothing in common. But that's the topic we want to take on today and hopefully bring some clarity to it. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. It's going to be good. So thank you again for joining us. And uh, let's just jump in and get started here on this topic. What we want to do is address what I'm going to call a lie, the incompatibility between the physical world and scientific enterprise and Christian faith, and really demonstrate that belief in God, following Jesus, and science are compatible. In other words, that you can love science and you can love Jesus at the same time. And really the, the main grounding that, uh, that we have for that is this idea that 95% of science really is irrelevant to Christian faith. In other words, water is H2O and the fact that it's not H3O has no bearing on whether a person is a Christian or an atheist or anything in between. Christians and non-Christians, for example, they write prescriptions the same, they build bridges the same, they learn parts of the body the same, they do chemistry equations the same, and the list goes on and on. And the fact that 95% of, of all of scientific enterprise really fits into this category, I think just on the front end is strong evidence that science and belief in God, they're not enemies. That's a false narrative that's being promoted. Again, you can love Jesus and science at the same time. But we still have 5%, Tom. You know, there's still that 5% out there. You know, what do we do with that? And to that end, for that remaining 5%, I want to suggest that most of that, and let's just call it 3 to 4%, in fact, of science is actually favorable to Christianity. In other words, it's, it's, it's discoveries that scientists find about the universe or about the human body or about other things uh, in our physical world that when you look at it actually promotes and reinforces what we see both in the Bible but also the idea of the existence of God. And I think that's very, very encouraging. So one example the fine-tuning of the universe. This is, this is an argument. This is one example of, of some work that's being done and has been done for many years in science that I would argue reinforces the idea that there is a God. 
Now, I want you to imagine with me that you take a trip to Mars and when you arrive there and you're on your little Mars dune buggy or whatever, and you're going over and checking out things, um, you would expect to see not a whole lot out there maybe, but imagine you come around a turn and you find this dome structure. And obviously that gets your attention. You're like, well, what is this? And so you, you get closer to it and, and check, at, check it out. And what you discover is that everything inside this dome is perfectly situated for life. You get in there and you realize the, the temperature is perfect. Uh, the humidity level is, is perfect. The oxygen recycling system, the energy gathering system, there's a system in place for food production and on and on it goes. And all these systems are in place and you, you look at it and you think this is absolutely incredible. Like it's, it's perfect for life to be sustained inside this dome here on Mars. Now, what kind of inference do you draw from that? What conclusion do you have? I mean, is, is your thought like, wow, that's random, pretty cool. Like it just sort of happened. Like it just popped into existence. Like, would you say that? Would you say, you know, given enough time and chances here on Mars, enough billions and billions of years, it's amazing how randomly this dome was developed and all the dynamics are perfect for life. Well, probably not, right? You'd probably say somebody did this. Like somebody who knew what they were doing, some kind of a designer got here first and built this dome because it's perfect for everything that is needed for the goal to achieve life. See, all those details coming together, it doesn't happen, you would know, from a natural, chaotic, unguided process. But this is exactly what we see from science in terms of what Earth is like. Earth is that dome, I mean, it's perfectly situated for life to exist. Have, Tom, have you heard this argument before? Is this, this one you're familiar with? As far as why science is favorable to Christianity? Yeah. Uh, for sure. This is a great one and an important one. And um, I haven't quite heard this particular illustration, but the fact that the complexity, for example, of the human body Kathleen, my wife, she does uh, some work with eyes. She codes and she codes eyes and eyes are so complex that it's crazy to think that the eye would come together just randomly. That's a great point. The human eye has over 2 million working parts. Yeah. Isn't that mind-boggling? Yeah, it really is. And it was interesting too because even Charles Darwin in his famous book, Origin of the Species, he talks about how the human eye derailed his theory. It's in the book. Of course, it doesn't get the headlines. Right. But he was he was marveled. He marveled at the at the human eye. Yeah, the other coders, they don't even like to do the coding of the eye. Uh, this is like Kathleen's specialty because it's so complex to come up with yeah. all the codes necessary. So this uh, great example and this this idea of this this uh, fine tuning argument then connected to this is is that everything Earth being like that dome is so perfectly dialed in to the exact parameter that's required for life to exist that for for to have even the tiniest change on even one of these constants uh, would prohibit life. 
and and would even make most forms of matter even impossible. So in other words, we sort of live on this razor's edge. And I've heard people say with this argument, imagine, you know, we were used to tuning our radio in the morning. You want to find a station you like or whatever. Imagine you have, you know, 10,000 of these dials and every dial to the micrometer has to be perfectly dialed in for, for this to work, for earth to work, for life to happen. That gives us a picture of what we have. So for example, the 24 hour rotation of earth, that is exactly what is needed for life. If it was anything different, then life would end. Uh, the tilt of the earth is 23.5 degrees. If you alter that, it changes things. The electromagnetic forces, if they're slightly changed, again, no life. If, um, if earth was even slightly closer to the sun, we would vaporize. 2% farther away, the oceans would freeze and life becomes incompatible. You get the idea here. Those are just a couple examples of these dials, but everything is perfect. And this is, this is the work of science to help us see and marvel at how perfectly situated this world in, uh, is. Did it happen randomly through a chaotic, unguided process? Or does it speak to an intelligent designer that put it all together? You know, to that end, the odds of winning the lottery or getting struck by lightning is approximately 10, uh, 1 in 10 to the ninth power. Unless you're New Hope Church, by the way, we keep getting struck by lightning or something up there at our building. I don't know what's going on, but up there on the hill. But it's, it's very rare to have that kind of event take place. The odds of randomly dealing a deck of 52 playing cards in a perfect order, it's 1 in 10 to the 68th power. The odds of the, of the universe randomly arranging all of its physical constants required for life, 1 in 10 to the 120th power. The size of that number is so massive, it basically communicates impossible. Interestingly enough, some scientists speak to this as well. Paul Davies, who's a physicist, he says the impression of design is overwhelming. Or Sir Fred Hoyle. He said, I do not believe that any scientist who examined the evidence would fail to draw the inference that the laws of nuclear physics have been deliberately designed. Now, what's important to highlight is neither of those scientists that I just quoted were Christians. They weren't believers. These are men who didn't come from that worldview, and yet they look at the evidence. They look at the fine-tuning that they see, and that's the conclusion that you can't escape. Now, are there other examples in addition to the fine-tuning argument? There are. Uh, for example, uh, the origin of biological information in DNA. Remarkable. I mean, the, the idea of, of DNA, which of course is in cells, and, and even just taking the human cell is mind-boggling. And in fact, I'll mention on this podcast, if you want to read a great book on this topic, it's called Signature in the Cell by Stephen Meyer. Stephen Meyer is an intelligent design uh, scientist. And it is remarkable and encouraging. I mean, the, the human cell and how it works will blow your mind. Uh, Ryan, what do you mean by intelligent design scientist? Um, are people who 
are committed to intelligent design Christians or not Christians? What, what does that mean? Yeah, intelligent design, there's, there's just the term you could say, it looks like somebody with intelligence designed something, but there's also a movement where it's called intelligent design. And intelligent design as a movement is a community of scientists who promote a worldview that says the explanation for why anything is here, but why we're here, how we got here, and what explains physical phenomena that science discovers and scientific enterprise must come from an intelligent designer. The tent of intelligent design is so wide that people who are inside of it aren't necessarily Judeo-Christian right. in worldview, but they do. But but Christians do comfortably fit into that. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. But there's other people, whether they come from different religious persuasions or they're agnostic, but they still look at the scientific evidence. They've also attached to to this movement mm -hmm. as well. It's a good question. So, so again, so biological information and DNA. Another one is the existence of, a, of, an, of, a, of a, an objectively real world. Easy to say. Uh, in other words, why is there something rather than nothing? Uh, that's a, definitely a philosophical enterprise. The existence of consciousness and rationality. Science. Um, you know, before you go on, the whole question of why is there something rather than nothing? I can remember when I was a kid, this was one of the things that got me thinking about God. Like I was nine years old and I'm thinking, why, why is everything here? And yeah. God, God uses these kinds of things in people's lives to cause them to question and can be one of those things that leads people to trust in Christ. That's a great point. Because you look at the physical world, for example, and it's contingent. It's not necessary. It's not necessary that we're here. It's it's that's right. the term is contingent. So what what caused it? Yep. Why is it here? And in fact, in philosophy, most philosophers will tell you that the number one question that philosophers are working on today is this very question: Why is there something rather than nothing? Isn't that interesting? So, whether you're nine year old or fifty year old, it's that's a right. relevant question. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. And you know this this topic I just mentioned, uh, the consciousness one. And even rationality, you know, where does that come from? The scientific enterprise struggles to know where consciousness comes from. That is not brain activity. Now, it corresponds to brain activity, but your conscious states are not, they don't live in your, you can't open your brain and find them in there. Where does that come from? There seems to be another example of strong evidence that there's, that, for example, a human person is much more than just a body. Mm -hmm. There's soulish activity there that would house consciousness and explain rationality, um, the existence of minds, for example. Uh, another one, existence of mathematics. It is mind-blowing that there is a language in math that corresponds to the physical world perfectly. How did that happen? And why is there a language that does that? And what's interesting enough, too, is that math actually requires the existence of God. How so? And science requires the existence of math, which becomes very, very interesting. So so you have, and you did ask a question, I'll get back to that. Yeah. You, you have this, again, um, these points that people acknowledge and they say, well, where does this come from? And what explains it? And I would add one more thing. And that is when you look at history especially in Western culture, 
science exploded and grew when Christianity was the predominant worldview. Mm -hmm. That only the Christian worldview that is, of course, explained um, and guided through the Bible is robust enough to enable science to flourish. So it's... um, So we're talking about people like Newton, for example... As he began to think about science, the Renaissance and and the Enlightenment period. I mean, that was there was there was a Christian worldview. These these men, for example, astronomers, uh, Galileo and others, who began to you know what's out there. That enterprise to learn about the physical world and even the idea that the physical world even matters because up to that point, a Platonic from Plato. His worldview that that the physical world isn't important and the physical body isn't important, best to just do away with all of it and escape all of that, that was really the primary, again, worldview until Christianity takes root. And you begin to see that this world does matter. It matters if I love my neighbor. It matters how I live in this world. That God, you know, through a bodily resurrection and Jesus is coming back. I mean, you have all these theologically rich points that highlight that, of course, there's life after death, but but this world matters too. Mm-hmm. And out of that sprung just this wonderful um, seeking, mm. you know, for for this world. So, so much there that um, I just, I hope as you're listening to this, and we're just hitting just little pieces of it that you you feel very um, encouraged and reinforced that the Christian worldview holding to biblical Christianity, boy, it partners beautifully with science. And I believe that, and it's great to think about these things, and yet there's a tension that comes in. Where's that tension or that opposition come from, that science and Christianity don't coexist, don't get along? I, yeah, it's thank you for that, and and I would I would suggest it really comes down to three topics. Now there might be a fourth and a fifth, but you talk about the primary ones, the ones where people divide, the ones that um, maybe keep some scientists from being published or tenured. You know the those high level ones, which we're going to call that one to two percent, that last little sliver where it feels like, and maybe it is a bit contentious. And for the rest of the podcast, I'd love to just, with you, just identify what are those those three mm-hmm. topics. Yeah. And uh, boy, any one of these topics could be an entire podcast episode. I mean, they really could. But in no particular order, let's, let's just hit those. The first one is, and this one is contentious, both between science and Christianity, and it's also unfortunately contentious inside Christianity. And that is the age of the earth. That is that is a topic that people don't agree. Um, here's where it really comes down to, is that when you look at most scientists, they hold that the universe is approximately 13.7 billion years old. Now they get to that number, and that's that's a big number. They get to that number through various means, such as carbon dating and some other types of things. Creationists, on the other hand, which let me just pause real quick. A creationist is somebody who holds to there is a God who created the heavens and the earth. They stand on the book of Genesis, especially chapters one and two. And I would suggest to you that the creationist view is the orthodox Christian view. 
it's one that anybody who loves Jesus should ascribe to. Amen. But within creationism, there's there's different views. There's two primary specifically. One of them is young earth, a young earth creationist view. The other is an old earth, or it's sometimes called day age. Now, real quick, just to draw the distinction between the two. The young earth creationist view says that uh, there is a God. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is true and trustworthy uh, and accurate. But the earth is is rather young, give or take about 7,000 year, years old. The day age or the old earth creationists say that Genesis 1 and 2 is true. There is a God, uh, that the Bible is accurate and trustworthy, but that the earth is much older and could even comfortably grant what the scientific community has ascribed to being 13.7 billion years old. So notice, just as an aside, notice that it's only the young earth creationists that come into conflict with the scientific community. That the day age don't necessarily have to. So why is there a difference between young earth and day age? And Tom, you've been in ministry a lot longer than I have. I mean, have you seen this where these two views and... Yeah, it can become rather harsh in terms of uh, the criticism of one for the other and not always a lot of graciousness. Unfortunately, yes. So why the difference? Yeah, and I think particularly because I'm a little variation from the day-age creationist. I'm essentially a day-age creationist, but I won't go into it. Uh, I have a little variation on that. And where I feel it from is that sometimes the young earth creationists are very harsh toward those who hold to an old earth, old universe kind of viewpoint. And if you can, maybe wh why do you feel like there's such criticism toward yeah. the uh, day age creationists from young earth creationists? It's interesting you say that. And I've seen that too, just in my years of life and ministry, but I've, I've seen it too from the day age going toward sure. the young earth. Yeah. And boy, none of it's good. None of it's good. So, Look, the, I would suggest the difference between these two views, it comes down to one Hebrew word. It's a tiny word, Y-O-M. It's pronounced yom. And what yom means in the Hebrew is a period of time that has a beginning and an end. That's what it means. It doesn't mean one hour, 12 hours, 24 hours, a week. Um, and in fact, ancient Hebrew as a language only has about 8,700 words. Like that is a tiny vocabulary for a language. And so what, what happens with Hebrew, which is what Genesis was written in originally, is you have to go to context to then understand how the word is being translated. Because yom is used for all kinds of different examples. Um, let me get, let me give you just some examples just straight from the Genesis chapters one and two, three different examples, Genesis chapter one, verse five, it says this, and God called the light day, uh, and the darkness he called night. Now that word day, that's yom in the Hebrew. That's how, that's how it is. So notice in this verse that Moses uses yom to indicate a 12 hour period. Because you had the, the daytime, the light, that's day, yom, and the darkness he called something else, night. So yom refers to, in this case, to a 12-hour period. 
Go a few verses later to Genesis 1, verse 14. It says, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be uh, for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Again, that word days, that's yom. But here, Moses uses yom to refer now to a 24-hour period. A few verses earlier, it was used as a 12-hour. And this is totally appropriate for how yom is. Again, period of time with a beginning and an end. Jump to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. It says, In the day that the Lord God made the, the earth and the heavens. Again, day, translated from the Hebrew word yom. But here, Moses uses the word yom to refer to the entire creative week to the, the seven day or seven yom days of creation. And so here you have something much longer. So you have a 12 hour example, you have a 24 hour example, you have something that refers to the entire creative week. All in Genesis one and two. It's all there. In two short chapters. You go to other places throughout the Old Testament and you're gonna right. see many other examples. Yom can refer to a season. It can refer to an age, like a long collection of time. So, What's the point? The, the point is, on one hand, there's some mystery to this. None of us were there. We do have a reliable account in Genesis. And as an aside, the account in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 for how creation was developed remarkably lines up with what science has discovered. It becomes the contention point of the Hebrew word yom, because some, the young earth view, for example, says that it was seven 24-hour um, consecutive days of creation. And again, the earth is very young. Well, maybe, but yom doesn't have to mean 24 hours, so, so maybe not. So then the day age says, well, we can take yom, and, and in this case, yom could refer to a period of time with a beginning and an end. And so, you know, the the fourth day of creation or the sixth day of creation could actually refer to millions and millions of years. And it still actually fits into the Genesis account because Yom is our only word to go off of. In light of that, though, at least for New Hope Church um, and what we would encourage on this podcast is this is not anything to divide about. And we don't and we won't. New Hope Church, for us, we, um, we hold strongly that there is a God who created the heavens and the earth. And we do not waver in our conviction over Genesis 1 and 2. Of its trust, it is a trustworthy account for how God did it. But regarding the timing, regarding was it 24-hour periods, was it longer stretches of time, we consider that a secondary issue and nothing that we would ever divide about. So so you are justified to hold to a young earth position, I would say, and I think you're justified to hold to a day-age position and, uh, and not divide over that. And we're talking about the creation of the universe. The creation of man is a whole different issue, right? Well, sure. So you have that taking place on the sixth day, the sixth right. yom. And... Um, even though, especially a day age position, even though the universe may be rather old and even fit in with scientific observation, humanity is 
there's no disagreement is a rather recent right. phenomenon. Yeah. In fact, I've heard it described this way, and smarter people than me have figured this out, that if 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 all of creation, at least in a day-age perspective, was... Uh, remember old encyclopedias you'd order and you have like 30 volumes on your bookshelf? Yep. Imagine the beginning is page one, word one, letter one on the first book, and you make your way all the way through that people don't actually enter into the story until the last page of the last volume in the last sentence in terms of the historical account. And again, that takes into account a day's view of, you know, long stretches of time. Right. But yes, that is one that's definitely agreed upon. Excellent. So that's a topic. That's one, and hopefully, just diving into a little bit of it, you know, for you as listeners is interesting. Again, we could take so much more time and unpack that, but I hope that is helpful. Yeah, so, and if people need resources, we can make suggestions later. Absolutely, just catch one of us, and we can pass things along. The second area that I would suggest is an area of contention that we're not going to take time in this podcast to unpack, and that is Noah's flood. Did it happen? Was it a local flood event? Was it a global flood event? That becomes one where there's there's arguments there. And some people look at the geological record and say the evidence is strong that there was a global flood, as we see in the account uh, in Genesis. Others say it's not there. And, you know, the arguments go back and forth. Yeah. So, well, there was a flood. We know that. <laughs> That's in Scripture. But how that took place, like you say, secondary issue again. That'd be a fascinating topic for a future episode. Yeah, it would be interesting. And then the third and final is, and probably the one that even gets the most headlines, is Darwinian macroevolution. This is this is the one. This is, uh, and actually, let me real, real quick, because maybe the way I introduced that sounds a little bit strange. What do we yeah, mean macro. by Darwinian macroevolution? <laughs> yeah. I think as Christians, we need to be very precise on this topic. When I say Darwinian, I'm referencing that to Charles Darwin's work, Origin of Species, in 1865 that he published that really was um, picked up by the scientific community to, to develop some ideas um, that, that would be anti-Christian. More on that in just a moment. Evolution, when we're having conversations with people, we need to be careful how we use the term because evolution is not carte blanche wrong or inappropriate, or even for a Christian, something to believe in. Microevolution, this is why I draw the difference between macro and micro. Mm -hmm. Microevolution, I would suggest to you, is true. It is something that um, the scientific community embraces and almost unanimously, and is something as Christians that we should also not be against. Microevolution refers to slight adaptations and adjustments within a species. So for example, an, an easy example, um, during the Middle Ages, the average height of a man is much, was much shorter than men are today. It was like 5'5 five, five to 5'7. Five, if you were 5'7, so I'm 5'9, like I would be huge. You'd be a giant. I'd be a giant. <laughs> I'd be in the uh, mid, Middle Ages NBA, you know, playing basketball back then. But, but anyhow, my point is over time, men have gotten taller. We see examples of that maybe around skin color or the sizes of people's noses versus where they live in different parts of the world. These microevolutionary changes over time, it's pretty much agreed upon. 
not a, not really even a big deal. Macroevolution is a whole different topic. Macroevolution refers to a change in kind between species. Tom, do you remember from like high school years or something like that, the tree of life diagram yep. where you'd have like the little amoeba that goes into the tadpole, that goes into the frog, that goes into the fish, that goes right. into the alligator, that goes into the bird, that goes into the monkey and on it goes. Then you have the top of the, light of the tree, you've got humanity and all that kind of stuff. There is zero evidence, nor is there any possible physical ability for a species to change kind. You don't see... Um, monkeys becoming people. You don't have the transitional kinds of examples. It's not there. Yeah. And in fact, even in reproduction, it's impossible. It's just impossible. In any kind of example you have of that, it can't reproduce after that. Like a donkey is sort of this hybrid. The donkeys can't go any further. Right. You don't... So so macroevolution should be rejected. Yeah, I also just actually read a day or two ago that... Even when you think about the mathematical probability of that many evolutionary kinds of changes that would be necessary over billions of years, it can't happen. Just mathematically, there's too many, there would be too many changes to have it fit, even within billions of years. It's wonderful, yes. And in addition to that, there isn't the evidence that there is sort of a compulsion or reason to have adaptation change of kind between species. Uh, a gentleman named a doctor, uh, Michael Behe, he produced a theory that I have held, and Philip Johnson did some wonderful work on this mm -hmm. as well, All has, has sunk Darwinian's uh, macroevolutionary yeah. theory. Philip Johnson would be a great person to read, too, yes. if people are looking for yes. an author. And even if you don't want to get into their books or whatnot, um, you can Google and research something called irreducible complexity. Remarkable work by Dr. Behe. And again, Darwinian's theory, it's all but done because of this irreducible complexity idea that's come out, which basically is the idea that says you, you, you can't have you can't have this process where you move from one kind of species to the other because you can't have all the parts in the middle. And, and maybe to explain it better, he used the example of a mousetrap. He says, okay, how do you get to a functioning mousetrap? Well, you've got, to make it very simple, you've got like, like five parts. You've got a base, you've got uh, the arm that gets the mouse, you've got the spring, you've got the lever that holds it in place, and then you've got the cheese or whatever it is, peanut butter, that gets the mouse to come. Why is it, let's say through a random chaotic evolutionary process, you get the base. Well, what is there that's going to motivate it to then move to the next piece to build the mousetrap? In other words, to kill mice, you have to have all the pieces in place at the same time in order to have that function for something to live because it has to kill mice. Likewise, the idea that you can over time through slight adaptation add pieces in order to get to a different species or kind, it simply doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And uh, he provides some wonderful examples of that and obviously will explain it better than I did. But, but, worth, but worth checking out. Nonetheless, Darwin's theory is still in place because it's the only thing that's there to justify naturalism. 
And it's the only narrative. It's the only story in town. So any kind of naturalistic explanation for how we got here, that story is better than no story. And so until there's a replacement story, until there's something else that's developed, it will remain in place. But for large measure, it's been, it's been debunked. So does naturalism lead to atheism or atheism lead to naturalism? Yeah. Well, you can be a, let me back up. If you're a naturalist, you're going to fit very well in, um, excuse me, if you're an atheist, you're going to fit very well in the worldview of naturalism. Because naturalism, again, this idea that the only thing exists is the physical world, it, it, its effort is to shut God out. Mm-hmm. It's imagining the world, it's having the presupposition that all that exists is the physical world and there's nothing beyond that. So as an atheist, you feel right at home in naturalism. I, I don't, it, you really couldn't say that all naturalists are atheists. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, the we're two certainly, topic, but the two certainly can feed one another. Uh, that's for sure. You could have a naturalist that's an agnostic, um, right, or a spiritualist of some way, uh, in the sense of like, um, my my church or my spiritual act of worship is to recycle or save the whales or something else in the mm-hmm. physical world and and that's sort of how it how i mean because look we're all spiritual we all worship something and so that becomes sort of their effort mm-hmm. but it has to be rooted in the physical world so yeah which is which is as we begin to wrap up that's the direction we're going isn't it i mean as as american culture becomes more secular and I would suggest we've moved beyond post-Christian. We're moving into anti-Christian. That's what we're saying. And you can't explain it all from naturalism, but naturalism in the university uh, and even in, in media and, and now increasingly in pop culture is becoming a primary driver for, for a worldview that removes God from the equation. Maybe a great place to close. The book of Ecclesiastes. Um, a remarkable book. And the, the book, if, if you haven't read in a while or maybe you've never read it, I encourage you to check it out. It, it's written by, by the king, by Solomon. And for various reasons, he is in a place in life where he takes the position that there is no God. And he takes the position that the only thing that exists is the physical world. And out of that mindset, he begins to try to find purpose and meaning in the world. In other words, could, can you find purpose and meaning apart from God? That becomes his grand experiment. I'm going to read to you a few verses here from Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. And I'll point a couple things out as we go. He says this. He says, The words of the teacher, that's referring to Solomon, son of David, king in Jerusalem, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So he gives you his conclusion right there at the beginning, at least in the process. He says, What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Now, I'm going to pause real quick. What he's going to begin to do is paint a picture of the physical world. He's going to begin to paint a picture of physical processes that happen in the world, and they happen over and over and over according to the laws of nature, laws of physics and chemistry and, and everything else. But he's going to highlight here 
that it doesn't really matter. Like none of it even matters. Let me show you what I mean. Again, he says, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. He said, the sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. Again, physical process. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be done again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there's something new? It was already here long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those uh, yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. This is actually philosophically a remarkable passage. There's so much in here, but are you seeing how he's describing naturalism? He's definitely describing naturalism, and some people say, why is that in the Bible? Yeah. This is his experiment, though. This is his grand experiment thousands of years ago, exactly what we're experiencing today. He's, He's trying to find purpose in the midst of just physical stuff. Sun rises and sun sets. Well, guess what's happening tomorrow? It's coming back. And it doesn't mean anything. And rivers come and rain comes and heat comes and different seasons and all these things happen. And there's nothing new. It's just doing what it's built to do. It just happens. And Solomon can't see anything of purpose in it. In fact, in the book, he begins to draw these observations that life is uh, fleeting and futile. And it goes fast. It has no purpose. Um his experiment isn't working very well. In fact, naturalism cannot provide purpose. Uh, let, to give you an example, Bertrand Russell, a famous atheist philosopher, he granted, he said, unless you assume a God, the question of life's purpose is meaningless. So whether he knew it or not, he agreed with Solomon. Uh, another one, uh, Stephen Jay Gould recently passed away. He said, we are here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age become because a, a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and crook. And then he says this in the end, he says, we may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. That's a depressing quote. He's like, look, we're here, but it doesn't mean anything that we're here. And your life doesn't mean anything. And my life doesn't mean anything. And the fact that we're even talking about this doesn't mean anything. Not, you, you really, you naturalism, if you take it to its logical conclusion, you end in nihilism, which is the worldview that says there's nothing and nothing matters. Nothing's important. There's, there's nothing to talk about in terms of morals. Nothing. That's nihilism. And nihilism is actually a psychologically concerning state of mind to be in. But this is where it goes. And so you can't live as a nihilist. And so Solomon, he kind of takes the role of an existentialist. And he begins to say, well, i got to find something to find meaning. So what does he do? You remember the book, Tom. He, it's sex. 
education, money, pleasure. Yeah, and he had it all. I mean, when you read through oh my Second goodness. Kings, I mean, like, he was a guy who could say all this, and you'd say, yeah, he has a reason to say it. That's right. And we're wise to learn from his experience. Not, not that he lost his faith, but he, he's showing us what happens if you adopt this yeah. kind of a lifestyle. Thankfully, to your point there, at the end, in chapter 12, there's this beautiful conclusion. Right. Where he... He draws, and again, for those of you listening, just just go there. Chapter 12, read the whole book, but go to chapter 12. He reintroduces God, and everything changes. It's so central. Uh, it's so it's so important, and again, for us to learn from Solomon in that. Yeah, and he's not saying, follow my example of the things I did wrong. He's saying, this is not the direction to go. There you go. Yeah. I would suggest to you, I think we would suggest to you, that Ecclesiastes is modern-day America. We have become, quickly rather, a nation that is embracing naturalism and other destructive worldviews. We are gutting God from every facet of our lives, education, politics, media, local culture. And, And the results, the results are that people around us are haunted by meaninglessness. They are the Solomon in this experiment. The, the people that you are neighbors with, the people maybe in your own family, the people you you know you go to baseball games with because you're watching your kids play, what or you work with, whatever the case may be, this is how they're living life, and they're trying to fill the void with something. Yeah. So one way to say it to um, tie it to what we've been talking about is if the viewpoint is that science is in a box then the viewpoint is, I'm in a box, and what do I do now? Yeah. Our nation and the people around us, we need to hear the message that there is a God and that the only way to live a life of purpose and meaning is to introduce him into your story and to put him as the centerpiece of your story and to reject the idea that there's anything, in this case, science is what our topic is today, that somehow debunks the idea that there is a God, that somehow debunks the idea that that you can't appreciate the physical world and that faith is something that's sort of in the realm of fairy tale with Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny, and it might make us feel good, but it's detached from reality. Nothing can be further from the truth. The Christian faith, and I've said this from the stage a few weeks ago, it is not a faith tradition. It is a historical, rational tradition. In other words, we shouldn't believe Christianity is true because we get a warm bosom in our heart that we think it's true. We should, and we have every opportunity to examine the evidence, verify. Did you mean a warm bosom in your heart? What did I say? (laughs) You said we get a warm bosom in your heart. Oh. (laughs) I think what you meant was a warm feeling in your heart. There you go. Thank you. Losing my mind, but nonetheless. So yeah, so it's like it isn't. It isn't from this sentimental idea that I think is true. Like examine the evidence, including science. It is not off limits. I hope when you're listening to this, and, and thank you for the time you spent listening, that it encourages you. That it encourages you. Let me just give you one way to apply this. Try for a week to go about your day looking at the physical world and finding all the ways you can see and observe that are become reasons to praise God. 
a sunrise. Look what you did. This is, we're recording this in the spring. I mean, I don't know about your yard, but my yard, there's things that are starting to come up mm-hmm. out of the ground or trees have some flowering. You know, it's just, it's just beautiful. Like, look what he's doing. Look at the handiwork of this physical world. God has peppered his world with his glory. And look for all these ways to, to identify that and to allow it to just build in you both your faith, but also an attitude of just worship and admiration for who God is. Amen. Well, again, hopefully this has been encouragement for you. Uh, Tom and I have enjoyed being with you and just unpacking this topic a little bit. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the What Do I Say podcast. God bless.